0: Thanks for joining us for our preaching podcast for the Point Church, Alberta campus. We believe strongly in the expositional preaching of God's word that builds our faith and grows us up in Christ. We pray that this message will be a help to you on your journey of faith. Now join me as we get to the point. If you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, would you open them up to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible with you today, let me encourage you to uh, grab one of those hardback black Bibles that are under the chair there with you and uh, turn to page 1001. 1001 is where you'll want to be if you're using one of those Bibles. Today we're going to continue our series in the book of Hebrews, which we've entitled, Jesus is Better Than. And in this series, we're looking to the book of Hebrews, and what we're going to see as we walk through the book of Hebrews verse by verse is that the main argument that the author of Hebrews is making is that Jesus is better. The whole book of Hebrews is committed to the unmitigated supremacy of Jesus Christ and on working to ensure that we understand that as his disciples and why that's so important for us. So last week, we looked at the first few verses of of chapter 2. In fact, we only looked at four verses, and what we saw was the first command in the book. And that command itself was pretty, pretty simple. It was pretty straightforward. That command was listen. Pay attention to Jesus. That was the command. But as we talked about that command, what we saw was a warning that came along with it that was just as important. We listen to Jesus, we, we keep ourselves focused on Jesus to keep us anchored, to keep us secure because our natural tendency is drift. Our, our natural tendency is to float away from Jesus so we want to pay attention to him. So what we saw in the first few verses of chapter 2 was this command to pay attention to his message, but as the conversation continues in the rest of chapter 2, the the author is going to return back to Jesus' supremacy over angels. And as he does, he's going to give us three reasons, three arguments that Jesus is better than the angels. So so let's go ahead and dive right in. Hebrews chapter 2, we're going to start at verse 5 hear the word of lord for it was not to angels that god subjected the world to come of which we are speaking it has been testified somewhere what is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him you made him for a little while lower than the angels you have crowned him with glory and honor putting everything in subjection under his feet now in putting everything in subjection to him he left nothing outside his control at present we do not yet see him See everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of our salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, as we open up your word today, as we look to your word and we consider what this message you have for us is, God, would you open our hearts and minds to hear what you would have us hear? Would you help us to see why Jesus is better, not just than angels, but better than anything that we might try to put above him? Would you help us to have a good view of Jesus, to understand who he really is, what he's really done? Would you speak to us today? God, as we look to your word, if there's somebody here today that's never chosen to follow you, would today be the day where, where you would work on their heart, where you would convince them that it now is the time to surrender, to repent of their sin and choose to follow you? That in following you, they're, they're not giving up something, they're gaining everything. God, would you save souls today? Would you encourage us as we go out of here today to be your disciples with a clear picture of who it is that we follow, who it is we are disciples of? It's in your beautiful name that we pray. And all God's people said, amen, amen. Sometimes appearances can be deceiving. Have you ever experienced that? Back in 2015, I was assigned to the commander of Carrier Strike Group 9. I was serving as the assistant air operations and safety officer for the admiral that was in charge of the entire strike group. Uh, Under the admiral's command were nearly 10,000 sailors, including seven different ships, eight squadrons of aircraft. There were a lot of people. And, And during that tour, we had three different admirals in command. The last admiral I worked for was a surface warfare officer by the name of Lisa Franchetti. Now, now, to be perfectly honest, when you met Rear Admiral Franchetti for the first time, she was not at all what you would expect an admiral to look like. She was about five foot two, very friendly, and to be perfectly honest, she reminds me of my favorite aunt. She didn't seem like a strike group commander. But in my role as the strike group safety officer, one of the things I had to do when we were at sea was encourage max participation, not only of the ship, but also of the flag staff in our daily FOD walkdowns on the flight deck. And and what a FOD walkdown is, is every day, several times throughout the day, in between the launch and recovery cycles of, of getting aircraft flying and getting them landing, they would get the crew to come up onto the flight deck, up to the bow of the ship, and walk from bow to stern looking for FOD. Foreign object debris. FOD is, is little chunks of metal, bolts, screws, tools, trash that might have somehow got onto the flight deck. It, when the weather is nice, it's a great opportunity, honestly, to get outside the skin of the ship, to, to get some fresh air, to soak up a little bit of vitamin D, which is surprisingly lacking inside the ship. So, so usually a lot of per- personnel would, would participate, uh, and junior sailors were, of course, out there because they were told they had to be, Right? Now, now when we're at sea, on the Flagstaff in particular, um, the uniforms we got to wear were kind of up to us. And one uniform that was quite popular among the Flagstaff was our flight deck uniform. And and it was a little bit ironic because we weren't required to work on the flight deck, so wearing a flight deck uniform was a little bit out of place. But we did it for two reasons. First, we were allowed to, right? They said we could. And second, it was comfortable. Uh, It was one of many colors of of long-sleeve mock polo shirts, and then khaki pants for the officers, blue pants for the enlisted sailors. Uh, But but with flight deck jerseys, when you're wearing a flight deck uniform, you have no rank insignia. So on days when Admiral Franchetti wore her flight deck uniform, those were the days where I really wanted to get her up onto the flight deck for FOD walkdown. And and one of my favorite games to play when, when I took her up to the flight deck was let's get the sailors talking to the admiral. I would take Admiral Frank Franchetti up to the flight deck in her flight deck jersey, and I'd lead her to a group of junior enlisted sailors, and we'd just start talking to them. And it was amazing how quickly and how open these sailors would be with her because they didn't realize who it was they were talking to. They, They would say whatever came to their minds, completely unguarded, sometimes probably not the best thing that they should say to an admiral. Eventually, as we were doing this, the Admiral would see some senior officer on the flight deck. She'd break off to go talk to them. And I had so much fun asking those sailors if they recognized who it was that they had been talking to. And as I revealed to them that they'd been talking to the Admiral, their facial expressions were hilarious. Sometimes appearances can be deceiving. Sometimes people are more important, more powerful than we realize. And as we look at this section of Hebrews chapter 2 today, what we're seeing is that these Jewish Christians who were living there seem to be living the same experience. So as we look to the rest of chapter 2 today, I I, I need you to remember that recurring thread that we saw from just the very beginning of chapter 1 because it's going to help us to understand the message that, that we're getting to here. Remember, in chapter 1, the author was working to show that Jesus was a better messenger. He was better than the prophets, but he was also better than the angels. And that was important because unlike today, these early readers of this letter, they had a much higher view of angels than we have. For, for them, angels were mighty warriors. Angels were the very mouthpiece of God as he spoke to his people. Angels were the ones who had delivered the law to Moses, which is how they knew how to get to God in the first place. But as we continue reading in, in our Old Testament, if you were to go to, say, Deuteronomy 32, what you'd see in the Song of Moses is that, that angels had additional roles. You see, the Bible tells us that, that they were given the administration of the, of the present world. It was under their control, their authority. They, they seem to have had some sort of dominion over the present world under God. All all that to say that this first audience that read through Hebrews had a very high view of angels, and that high view of angels seems to have lowered their view of Jesus. It it seems to have subjugated it to angels, placed it where it doesn't belong. And that's a problem. Because if you're going to be a disciple of Jesus, if you're going to follow Christ, you need to know who it is you're following. You need to have a right view of who Christ is. And that was as true for them as it is for us today. Because while we might not have the same kind of view of angels, we might not place them in a position of prominence over Jesus, that, that might not be what we do. We don't have, if we don't have this right view of Jesus, odds are fairly good. We're going to place someone or something over him. So in the remainder of chapter 2, what we're going to see is that the author of Hebrews is going to work to show that Jesus is better than angels And he's going to use three main arguments to show us why that's the case. The first argument that the author uses is in verses 5 through 9. And the point he's going to make is that Jesus is better because Jesus sacrificed himself for us. Jesus sacrificed himself for us. Take a look starting at verse 5. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him? For everyone, So what we're looking at here in, in this little chunk of the letter is, is an argument that's being built around Psalm 8. But, but before he gets to Psalm 8, the author points out that while God had entrusted the administration of the present world to angels, that was not the case of the world to come. And that phrase, the world to come there, is a reference to the new order that's inaugurated at Jesus' enthronement in heaven. Following his resurrection, as he goes up to heaven, sits down at God's right hand, that's the new order. That's the world to come that they're talking about here. So he makes that statement, and then he quotes from Psalm chapter 8, verses 4 through 6. But if you really want to understand the the importance of Psalm 8, it it helps us to read the, the whole psalm. So let's turn back there. Let's take a look at Psalm 8. It's a short psalm. If you're using one of the Bibles under your chairs, it's on page 450. Psalm 8, starting at verse 1. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens, Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. This psalm is a psalm that the author of Hebrews is quoting and he's quoting it because it sings of the glory of God. The, the psalm proclaims the psalmist's awe at the fact that God has created all of these things, all of this stuff, and yet somehow he still cares for mankind. As a side note, as, as we think about that, that ought to create a little bit of awe in our hearts as well. Like, have you ever gone outside in the, in the black of night and you just look up at the sky and you see the stars and the galaxies on a clear night, if you ever get a chance to go out at sea on a cruise or something, you'll really, you'll, you'll see that out there. Have you ever gone to the Grand Canyon and you walk right up to the edge and you just, you look out on the expanse of what God has done there in Arizona? Have you ever gone to the ocean and stood at the shoreline and as you're, you're looking out, taking in the waves and the wind and, and all that's happening... Have you ever considered the human heart and what it does, how it pumps blood 24-7, 365? Have you ever tried to comprehend the idea that you can can store 215 million gigabytes of data in a single gram of DNA? God did all of that. Every single one of those things. That's what God does. That's who he is. And still, in, in spite of all of that, He cares for us. He loves us. He pays attention to us. That ought to inspire some awe in our hearts. That's what Psalm 8 is meant to remind us of. It stands in awe of the creation that God has placed under the dominion of man and worships God for that. But there's kind of a problem here because what our author is doing in Hebrews 2, verses five through nine is pointing out that while that's the way it was meant to be, that's how God ordained things to be in Genesis chapter one, that dominion was wrecked by sin. Because of sin, man is not exercising dominion over creation. That's what he means when he says at the end of verse eight, at present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. We don't see creation under our dominion We can't control the fish of the sea. We can't control the birds of the air. We we can't control the beasts of the field. We can't control the weather. We saw that in the last couple of weeks, right? I mean, if we're being perfectly honest, sometimes we have trouble controlling ourselves. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to Him. But then look at verse 9, because while we don't see everything in subjection to mankind like it was ordained to be, do you know what we do see? We see Jesus, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. We see Jesus, Jesus, God the Son, who became a man so that he could suffer and die for man's sin so that he could restore the dominion that was lost because of sin think about it when Jesus was on the earth he had the authority he had the dominion that we lost and in eden think like there are examples Jesus he commanded the fish of the sea and the disciples nets were overflowing Jesus spoke the word and the rooster crowed on cue The Bible tells us that when Jesus was out in the wilderness, as he was fasting and praying, as he was being tempted, he was accompanied by wild animals. Jesus walked on water. He commanded the wind and the waves, and they obeyed him. Jesus had the dominion that was lost when sin fractured all of creation. But what our author is saying is that that dominion that Jesus had went beyond that. All things are subjected to him. All things in such a way that nothing, not even the angels, is not under his control. Jesus was made lower than the angels. He he put on flesh so that he could taste the sting of death for our sake. And, And because of that great sacrifice, he is now crowned with more glory and more honor. He is now exalted. We don't see the world under the dominion of mankind, but we see Jesus who died for our sin who by and through God's grace tasted death for all of us. Jesus is better than angels because Jesus sacrificed himself for us. When the angels served God, they they went where they were commanded. God sent them to go somewhere with a message, and, and they went there. He sent them, and they did his bidding. But Jesus chose to leave heaven. God the Son condescended to put on flesh so that he could deal with sin once for all, so that he could taste death for everyone. That's the first reason that Jesus is better than angels. But as we move on in our text, what we're going to see is that Jesus is also better than angels because Jesus is the founder of our salvation. Take a look with me, verses 10 through 13. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist... In bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. And and, and we need to stop right there for just a second and and anchor down because we need to unpack that a bit. And the first thing we need to do as we anchor down here is, is address the personal pronoun at the beginning of the sentence. He. Who is the he that we read in, for it was fitting that he. Who is that? That's God the Father. And we need to understand that because the he that's in this sentence is the actor in the sentence. He, God the Father, is the one for whom and by whom all things exist. He, God the Father, is the one who is bringing many sons to glory. He, God the Father, is the one who makes the founder of our salvation perfect through suffering. God is the one that's at work when it comes to our salvation. We need to hear that. Like like we need to, to hear that and we need to internalize that. We need to get that into our heads because we always are forgetting that. We are constantly trying to make ourselves holy. We are constantly trying to be our own saviors. And the problem with that is we're terrible saviors. We can't do it. We can't be holy enough. We can't be righteous enough. We don't have what it takes by ourselves. We cannot do it. And all you have to do to realize that I'm right here is think about your New Year's resolutions, right? Because every single year, January 1 comes around and we make these resolutions. Oh, I'm going to do this and this and this. And, and by the end of February, most of us have like just completely failed, right? Think about some of the resolutions you make. Like I'm going to read the entire Bible through from Genesis to Revelation. In one year, I'm going to read the whole thing through. And we do great for a while. Genesis, no problem. Exodus, hey, that's fun. There's exciting stuff happening there. Leviticus, oh, it gets a little bit hard. And by the time we get to Deuteronomy, we're just done, right? It's just like rule after rule. If you make it through Deuteronomy, numbers is going to get you. We've all failed. Think about some of the other resolutions we make. This year is the year that I'm going to finally lose some weight. This is the year that I'm gonna get into those jeans at the bottom of the drawer. And by the time we get to the middle of February, we're stuffing our face with king cake and those jeans are like another layer deeper in that same drawer. They're never coming out. We can't do it on our own. We don't have it in us. We don't have the force of will to be our own savior. We need a savior that isn't us. And what I want you to see as we're looking at the text here is that God agrees he agrees that we can't be our own savior. So God is at the, the one that's at work with it when it comes to our salvation. Do you see that here in the text? God is the one who acts to save us, not us. So, so in verse 10, it's telling us that it's fitting that God the Father should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. And again, we've got to pause here for a second because this is one of those, those texts we read in Scripture, and, and on first looking at it, that, that gets really hard really fast, right? Like, wait a minute, what, what's the saying here? What's the saying? Because at first glance, as I look at it, it almost seems like God is saying, or it's saying that God the Father had to make the founder of our salvation, which, which the context clues here are, are pointing to, making clear, is Jesus. It's saying that it had to make Jesus perfect, and, and if you're anything like me, you're asking, wait a minute, isn't Jesus God and if Jesus is God, isn't, isn't he perfect already? Is the text telling us right here that, that Jesus isn't perfect? It's hard, right? It's, it's hard. So, so let's consider it a little bit more closely. Let's, let's take a look at this. In the Greek, the English word founder is archagos. Archagos can mean founder, but it can also mean pioneer, author, or chief. It shares the same root as the English word architect. He's the one that's making the plan. He's the one that makes the way that leads to salvation. He blazes the trail for us to follow. And here it's clear that Jesus is that trailblazing pioneer. But but what does it mean if the author is saying that God the Father had to make our trailblazing Savior perfect? If Jesus is the Son of God... If he is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, as we saw back in chapter 1 a few weeks ago, how can he need perfecting? The answer is he doesn't. Jesus, God the Son, already is perfect. That's already been established earlier in this letter. But what the author is telling us is that the perfect Son of God has become the people's perfect Savior opening up their way to God, and in in order to do that, he had to endure suffering and death. Frederick Bruce said that the pathway of perfection which God's people must tread must first be trodden by the pathfinder. Only then could he be their adequate representative and high priest in the presence of God. In order for Jesus to be the perfect Savior, he had to humble himself. He had to step down from heaven. He had to put on flesh. He had to live like we live, except without sin. He had to experience all that we've experienced, but without failure. The perfect son of God had to come to earth and live a perfect human life. He had to suffer and die in our place in order to give us his perfect salvation. He had to do all of that so that he could be the founder, the pioneer, the architect, the pathfinder of our salvation. That's what we're seeing here in verse 10. So the author says that, and then he continues into verse 11, for he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. And again, this is pointing to the fact that it's God who saves us. We don't save ourselves If you write in your Bible, you might underline the words, one source. At some point in my previous Bible study, I underlined them, and then I added the note, it's not me, it's God. Jesus stepped down from heaven to be the founder of our salvation, and his source and ours for sanctification is God himself. We're saved by God's grace through Jesus and at that moment of sanctification, sanctification, we become the sons and daughters of God. Which is why the author of Hebrews continues in the second half of verse 11 and says, That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. When we place our faith and trust in Christ, we become spiritually united to him we become his brothers and sisters we're also his children what we're seeing here is a a new status that we get from jesus as we're following christ because he's the founder of our faith so we find our identity in him because we're his brothers and sisters we have the same identity as christ we find our hope in him as he trusts in god the father We find our security in him because God has given us to him as his children. That's what this is showing us plainly. That that Jesus is better than angels because Jesus is the founder of our salvation. But there's one more argument that the author of Hebrews uses to demonstrate why Jesus is better than angels. And we find that argument in verses 14 through 18. And the main thrust of that argument is that Jesus is better than angels because Jesus understands what it's like to be us. He understands what it's like to be us. Take a look with me. Since therefore the children, and that's you and me, That's us. Since we share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one that has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. What what the author of Hebrews is, is telling us here is that because we are human, because we're flesh and blood, Jesus had to become like us. He chose to become like us. And he chose to become like us in every way. In fact, what our author is telling us here is that the very, saint, the very reason for Jesus' incarnation, the, the reason that Jesus stepped down from heaven, the reason Jesus came and lived life here on earth was so that he could die. But in that death, he would accomplish that which no other death could accomplish. In that death, he would defeat death. He would destroy the one who has the power of death. That word destroy in English is good, but, but you lose a little bit of the drama there from the Greek. Because C- in the Greek, it, that, that word is, is katargo, and it means to abolish, to wipe out, to make powerless, to make idle. But there's one more definition that I just, I really love this. One more translation of that word, and that, that translation is to leave unemployed. I don't know why I like that, but I really do. I like this idea that in Jesus' death, Satan is so defeated that he's left filing for unemployment. I'm not trying to make light of what this is saying here, but that's powerful if you really think about it. You see, Jesus so utterly defeated Satan at that exact moment that Satan thought that he had utterly defeated Jesus that it leaves Satan with no work left to be done. He's completely unemployed. He's done. He's been made idle. His empire, his power, it's all been destroyed. And because he's been destroyed, the slave master of death has been destroyed too. How many of us walk around completely terrified of dying? So afraid of death that we don't even live. We're we're so afraid of death that we don't live the, the life that Christ has set before us. We don't live the mission that Christ has set before us. And what this is telling us is that that doesn't have to be true for you if you're a Christian. I had this conversation with my mom this last Thursday night. My, my Aunt Jerry is not doing well. She's 74 years old. She's got multiple health issues. She's in a nursing home up in Washington State. But just this last week, they found out that half of her heart is not doing what it's supposed to be doing. And as mom and I talked about this, as we, we, we talked about Aunt Jerry, we were reminded that, that because Aunt Jerry is a Christian, because she loves Jesus, for her, she is in a no-lose situation. So, so we prayed for Aunt Jerry, and in that moment, we acknowledged that for her to live is Christ. If, if God heals her and she leaves that nursing home and goes home, we'll celebrate that. We'll make much of that. She'll get to continue to serve the Lord, and that's awesome. But if he takes her home, to die is gain. She gets to be with Jesus, and that is even better. I'm not being glib. I'm not making light of the fear of death, but that's the truth for Christians. The Apostle Paul told us that, and listen to how he said it. Listen to his words, because you can can feel the tension that Paul was experiencing towards the end of his life when he wrote in Philippians chapter 1, For to me, to live is Christ, to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Listen to this part, though. This this just kind of blows my mind. Yet which shall I choose, I cannot tell. He doesn't know which to choose. He doesn't know if he wants to live or he wants to die. And the reason for that is because his desire is to, to, to depart and to be with Christ, for that is far better. Paul understood that to live, to, to live is, is to get to serve Christ. But if you die, you get to be with Christ. And that's so much better. And still, I can't help but wonder, can I say that? Can I say it and mean it? Can I, at 40 years old, stand up here and say, to live is Christ, but to die is gain? At the cross, Jesus defeated and destroyed the one who has the power of death, Satan himself. And in, in doing that, he has delivered us from lifelong slavery to the fear of death, which means we're set free to live for him. We're set free to live big for him. We, we don't have to worry. We, we, we can say, if I serve God and I die in the process, I win. Can can you say that? Do you see that's what's here in the text? We're free because Jesus has come to help us. That's what the author of Hebrews is saying here, and it continues on into verse 16. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Jesus came to help the offspring of Abraham. Who's the offspring of Abraham? Who is that? That's us. You don't have to be a Jew to be Abraham's offspring. Your faith is what secures your inheritance, not your DNA. That's what Paul tells us in Galatians chapter 3. Know then that it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles, that's you and I, by the way, by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed, along with Abraham, the man of faith. Who did Jesus come to help? He came to help us. And look what that means. Because he came to help us, verse 17 tells us, therefore, he had to be made like us, or made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Think about that. Jesus came and was made, and he was made like us in every respect. He knew what it meant to be hungry. He he knew what it meant to be thirsty. He, He knew what it meant to be tired. He knew what it meant to love and to be loved. He he knew what it meant to be hated. He knew what it meant to be betrayed. He knew what it meant to be falsely accused. He knew what it meant to suffer injustice. He knew what it meant to be tempted. And he knew what it meant to suffer because he didn't succumb to that temptation. And every time I've read that passage here in Hebrews, and I've I've thought about Jesus' temptation every single time. I don't know why. My brain always has gone to Jesus' temptation by the devil before his ministry began as he was out fasting in the wilderness. But as I was studying this week and I was thinking about this, it it occurred to me that there are other times that Jesus was tempted. That, That the Gospels tell us about other times that Jesus was tempted. Matthew chapter 27 Verses 39 through 44 it's Friday morning and noon is quickly approaching. Jesus has been up all night long, but now he's hanging there on the cross. He's, he's got nails in his hands and his feet. He's got a crown of thorns on his head. His black back is bloodied and open from the scourging that he'd received. He's weak. He's tired. He's suffering. And if all that weren't enough, we read that those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. They're tempting him right there. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him saying, he saved others, he cannot save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross and we will believe him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Has it ever occurred to you that Jesus could have come down off the cross. Like his enemies are standing there and they're looking up at God the Son nailed to a cross and they're antagonizing him and they're saying, you, you're, you say you're God, come down here and prove it. And he could have. He could have stepped down from the cross. They were tempting him in that moment. But instead he chose suffering. Suffering. He chose pain. He chose humiliation. He chose to reconcile sinners to himself. Jesus knows far better than we realize, far better than we want to admit. He knows what it means to be like us. He lived life just like us in every respect except one. He didn't sin. And because he didn't sin, he was able to make propitiation for us. That that word propitiation is, is a big word that we don't use in our vocabulary, but what it means is it's a sacrifice given to appease a wrathful God. It's an atoning sacrifice. But what makes this propitiation so incredible is that this propitiation is given to to appease the wrath of God, but it's given by God himself out of his love for mankind. So Jesus knows what it's like to be us. He knows. And because he knows, he can be the high priest, the mediator, the one that goes between you and God. He can be that. He can be the mediator that we need because he knows what it means to be tempted and he can help us when we're tempted. I think sometimes we think that Jesus is up there and he sees when when we come to this moment of of temptation and he's, he's like looking down on us. He's like, seriously, dude, how have you not gotten over this yet? That's what we're thinking he's doing up there. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible tells us that he's able to help us when we've been tempted because he's been tempted. All we have to do in those moments is say, Jesus, I need your help right now. My flesh is pulling me here. It tells me to go there. I know that's not where I need to go. Help me right now. And the Bible is telling us he will, he will help us. And that's why Jesus is better than angels. Because while angels have served as mediators between God and man in the past, they've been his mouthpiece. They don't know what it means to us. But Jesus does. Jesus is better than angels. For all their history, all all their interactions, all their knowledge about angels that the first audience of the book of Hebrews had, what the author is trying to tell them, and and honestly what he's trying to tell you and me, is that Jesus far exceeds the angels. And, And while we might not place angels in a position of prominence over Jesus, that doesn't mean we don't put other things there. I told you as we began, sometimes appearances can be deceiving. Sometimes people aren't, are, are more important, more powerful than, than we realize that they are. And my point is that sometimes we don't see Jesus for who he really is. We think of him as a kind and loving man who taught us good lessons and we miss his true identity. That he is the powerful God who put on flesh and came to earth for us. We miss the fact that he's more than a good teacher. He's more than a good counselor. He's God who sacrificed himself for us, who came to be the founder of our salvation, who understands what it means to be us. And when we miss that, when we don't have a right view of who Jesus is, odds are fairly good, we're gonna put something or someone in his place. Maybe it's a job. We start thinking, man, if I could just get that next promotion, if I get that next pay raise, if I get this dream job out there, I'll earn enough money, I'll be free to do what I want, I'll find my worth, I'll find my value, I'll find what I need. Maybe it's good works. We think, man, if I just serve enough, if I just do enough good things, if I'm just a a good enough person, I can outweigh the bad of my past, and I'll finally, I'll finally be free. Maybe it's a spouse. We think, man, if I can just find that right guy or that right gal, she will complete me, he will complete me, and then I will be whole. Maybe it's fill in the blank. There are so many things that we try to put in the place of Jesus in our life, but what you need to understand is whatever it is, it's not enough. It can't be enough. What we need is Jesus. We need his perfect life. We need his sacrificial death. We need his resurrection. We need the salvation that he's offered us. What we need is Jesus, who sacrificed himself for us in order to become the founder of our salvation. We need Jesus, who perfectly understands what it means to be us. We need Jesus. Because Jesus is better than angels. Let's pray. Father God, as we think about this text, at first glance as we, we think about the argument that the author of Hebrews is making here about how Jesus is, is, is better than angels, we, we think about it, we, if we're being honest, we kind of say, yeah, duh. Of course he's better than angels of course he's superior to them he's god and yet if we're being honest so many times in our lives we might not have put angels in a level higher than jesus we've we've still put other things up there We said, yeah, Jesus is a good teacher. Yeah, Jesus is good. He's he's done these great things. He taught these good lessons. He was a moral man. And without even knowing it, we've taken Jesus off his throne and said, yeah, he's, he's just down here with us. God, we confess that when we do that, we're missing out on who Jesus really is how really important he is for us. So God, would you work in us? Would you help us to see who Jesus really is? Would you help us to see how much of a big deal it is that he sacrificed himself for us, that he didn't have to do that, but he did anyway? Would you help us to see the implications of what it means that he is the founder of our salvation? And in those moments of weakness when when our flesh seems like it's going to overtake us, when it seems like it's going to take control, where where we feel like all we have to choose is, is failure, all we have to choose is sin, in those moments, would you help us to remember that Jesus knows what it's like to be us He knows what it's like to be tempted. And because he knows that, he's ready and waiting to help us. And so in those moments, would you help us to turn to you and say, I need help. I can't do this by myself. God, would you help us? Maybe you're here today and... and you're hearing me talk about this gospel message that Jesus came and lived the life that we couldn't live, that he, he died the death that we deserve to die. You're, you're hearing that, and you're saying, man, Josh, I, I've heard that before, but, but right now, something's different. Right now, I, I want more. I, I'm hearing what you're saying, and, and there's this desire in me, and I can't really explain it right now. If that's you, with every head bowed, every eye closed, I'm not going to embarrass you. I'm not going to make you feel out of place. I'm not going to make you come up to the front. But what I want to tell you is that's not Josh. That's the Holy Spirit at work in your heart. Follow that lead. I want to give you the opportunity to follow that lead. And so so what that's going to look like is with every head bowed, every eye closed, nobody's looking around. It's just me. Would you look up and make eye contact with me? I'm going to start on my left, your right. If you haven't chosen to follow Jesus and you want him to be the Lord of your life today, would you look up and make eye contact with me? My left, your right. Going over to my right, your left. If that's you today, you want to follow Jesus. If that's you, It's not a magic formula that you have to follow. You just need to pray something to the effect of Jesus. I recognize that I'm a sinner, that that I failed, that I can't make myself holy and righteous. Would you forgive me of my sin? Would you be the Lord of my life? Would you empower me to follow you If that's you today and you pray something like that and you mean it, Christ will answer that prayer. There's some follow-up that I'd like to do. So after the service, come grab me. Grab Brother Ricky. There's a few other men in here that you can talk to. Come talk to us. We'll help you along with the next steps that you'll want to follow. Don't try to follow Jesus on your own. Let's do it together. Father God, we thank you for this time that we've had together today. As we prepare to head out of here today, God, would you go with us? Would you help us to be your disciples? Would you help us to be the men and women that you've called us to be? Help us to follow you, to to be your mouthpiece to speak when you give us the opportunity. We love you, Lord Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Every week as we close out our service, we remind ourselves that it's not about the service here, right? So would you stand with me, and we're going to recite Matthew 28 together. We'll put it on the screens. You don't have to do it from memory. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Every week I, I, I tell you that I love that end part, right? Because we don't go by ourselves. He goes with us. So I hope that you're encouraged. I, I hope that you find the opportunity to be the disciple maker that he's commanded us to be. Let's pray and we'll be dismissed. Father God, thank you for this time together. As we go, go with us put people in our path that we can proclaim the gospel to. And when that moment comes, would you help us to open our mouths and share? Would you use our feeble attempts to save souls? Help other people in our families, in our neighborhood, in our community, in our workplace to know the freedom that we found in you. We love you, Lord Jesus. It's in your name we pray, amen. Hey church, you're sent. Go live the gospel.